0: welcome back to pro running news dave and matt here talking all things houston marathon or we were going to talk all things houston marathon and a bit of valencia 10k as well but in prepping for the episode matt kindly reached out to hendrik pfeiffer from germany uh who got third in houston and uh asked for some details on his training and he sent, he kindly sent us a voice note which we're going to play now and uh when you hear this voice note you'll understand why we decided to kill the rest of the episode and then talk solely about his uh his performance there because it's uh, a really cool voice note and uh, lots to unpack from that
1: yeah huge thank you to hendrik i mean uh, i spoke to have spoke to hendrik on and off um from time to time and i've caught up with him over the last few years and really appreciative of him sending us this uh little voice note full of wisdom
2: for me the houston marathon was definitely the biggest achievement in my career so far i'm very happy with the huge pr especially since i improved my personal record in Berlin already by 1 minute 30. This was in September, now four months later, I did it again by 1 minute 34. So it is a very huge progress in the, in the within the last month. And of course, there was also the NYC Marathon between the two races. Um, Berlin and, and Houston were definitely more my focus, but New York um, was also a highlight that, that I wanted to do. I'm pretty sure that for me, the recovery is one of my biggest strengths I have because I put a lot of energy into it. Uh, I take it as seriously as I take my normal training. And I think this is one of the main reasons why I'm able to do so many marathons within a very short period of time. My training leading towards Houston was not so easy because I did it all at home in in Germany, in Hannover, where the weather conditions were quite tough in November, December and also January. It was almost raining every day or it was freezing cold or it was was snowed. So I had to move quite often to uh, the indoor track that we have fortunately here in our city. And I did a lot of work on the treadmill. And both of it is not common. I in the, in the last years, I almost never trained on the treadmill and I never trained indoors. So I made very good experiences with it now. Uh, I even did quite uh, long sessions, uh, either on the treadmill or on the indoor track. For example, I did uh, an in-and-out program. Uh, it means I do one kilometer on a pretty fast pace, uh, around race pace, marathon race pace, uh, three minutes or even faster, sometimes half marathon pace, sometimes even 10,000 meter pace, and one kilometer a bit slower um, at around 315 pace. So it's a total of 20k, uh, 10k, as I said, in a very fast pace, like 300 increase to to, to uh, 250 and this low K was always like 315. And this is uh, 100 laps on the indoor track, so it was mentally challenging, but it felt far more easy to do it indoors than outdoors. And that's why I decided to do so many things uh, in these conditions. What helped me very much was uh, a long workout on the treadmill. I did uh, eight times 3000 meters. The three thousand meters were slightly faster than my uh, race pace so far in Berlin. My race pace was three zero three per kilometer, and on the treadmill I went three zero zero, and I had a five hundred meter break in between in a pretty slow pace. I think f- five minutes per kilometer, and I made the experience that it's far more easy to survive workouts like like these on a the treadmill compared to to outdoors. And it's easier to control the paces. If I train outdoors, it might be windy, it might be hilly. So it's not so easy to hit the 3-0-0 pace exactly. On the treadmill, it works. And this was one of the main lessons I learned, uh, that, that the treadmill training is nothing to fear. It was something that helped me a lot. And I think this is one of the main reasons why I achieved such a huge personal record now again in Houston even though the time between New York and Houston was not so big. Um, as I said, Berlin, New York, Houston means three high-level marathons in the short period of four months. And I'm pretty sure that uh, I took a lot of energy uh, in Houston from my long preparation that led towards the Berlin Marathon. So all in all, what encouraged, encourages me a lot is that in uh, even in winter conditions it is pretty possible to achieve great things i i don't fear running in the cold um, but i fear running in the cold if the session is very fast and intense or if it's even a shorter session like 400 meter repeats it is very painful for the for the muscles and it's always a risk to get injured and you can minimize the risks when you train indoors or on the treadmill so I think this was maybe the secret behind the 2.07 time that I achieved in Houston. I accepted that I had not the possibility to go to an altitude training camp, which I always prefer, but I embraced the situation and I learned how to hide from the tough conditions when it's not helpful for yourself. Um, It was no problem to do 15k in the morning, 18k in the afternoon, In a moderate pace, even if it rains or if it snows, but as I said, running three minute pace for a huge amount of kilometers, at at three zero zero pace, this is something that works also outdoors in winter conditions, but it has an impact on your recovery time, and I avoided it, and this is really yeah the knowledge um I gained from this. Winter training that led towards Houston, and also what encourages me a lot is that uh, in Houston the conditions were not so good, um, especially since there were no pacemakers and all the Kenyan runners in the in the field let me do all the work because they were not interested in the fast time. I was one of the few athletes in the field that uh, chased the fast time to qualify for the Olympics. And they took advantage of it, so I was like forty-two kilometers in the wind all all the time. And of course, this is not ideal. Um, also, the course is one of the faster courses, but it's definitely not the fastest course um, compared to Valencia or CV. And if I if I think about running a race in Valencia or CV with many pacemakers in a huge group, I'm pretty sure that I can even achieve a far faster time, maybe even at two or five. And this is very encouraging for me. So I'm very happy with the lessons I learned. And I'm of course, very happy with the result in Houston. And it showed me that I can keep up with the best in the world. And this is something you want to have.
0: All righty. Well, there you go, guys. That's uh, I mean, yeah. So much to unpack from that, Matt. Uh, I got that. You sent it through to me. I got it and, and just texted you back and said, "Geez, that's great." And you said, oh, "I haven't yeah. listened to it yet." And then uh, you, you listened to it and just said, "Oh wow, that is good." So yeah, uh, I mean,
1: I would have been happy with a short email with a couple of bullet points, but Hendrik went—he uh, went all all out on this one. Really appreciative. Didn't surprise me, honestly. Every every time I bumped into him in Kenya and spoken to him, he's he's been really keen to chat. You know, training and racing, and he he seems like he, as you can really tell by that voice note, he really thinks deeply about these things and tries to understand what works best for him, which is what everyone really should do. But he's, I think he takes that to the, to, to the extreme, to the next level, which is, you know, as a result, you know, and as, as a result of that has now run uh, one of the fastest non-African marathons uh, in the world for, for a while, one of the fastest anyway.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. Like that personality type, I think is pretty prevalent in endurance sports, particularly uh, the, the person who's very engaged in their training. I think the, that's that seem that person seems to do really well and the other archetype that seems to do really well is a person who doesn't care at all who just does what the yes. coach says and and yep. anybody in the middle seems to struggle a little bit more uh, and it's that's very not, true that's not to say that it's there's any right or wrong ways it's just what i've observed of the best athletes in the world is they seem to be one of the two poles there's not a lot in the middle they're either very engaged or very disengaged um so yep. uh, a couple of things about henry that i you know i was just looking up um because I don't, I think some people, particularly listeners didn't really know too much about him, but you know, he's 30 years old. So he's not particularly old, particularly for the marathon and, you know, hat tip to our previous, you know, episode 50 on age and and recovery and all those things. And we'll we'll talk a bit about that in a little while, but um, he's a Puma athlete. We talked a little bit about this Puma got third and fourth here. So maybe there's a, you know, the shoes are, you know, we'll we'll do an upcoming episode updating us, everyone on the shoes uh, and, and some research has come out about them recently, not so much Puma, but you know, super shoes in general, because, you know, it's always a people are always interested. Uh, he took two 90 second chunks off his PB, which is pretty big for anybody, but particularly at that top level, you know, within a year. Uh, and, and we'll talk about hit the conditions that he mentioned as well a little bit, but just so people are aware, he, this is his first marathon this year. He did the three last year. And we'll talk about those specifically, because that will be part of what we talk about 2022. He did five marathons. Did Hanover, the Eurochamps, Cologne, Frankfurt, and NYC. 2021, he did the Olympics. 2020, he did Sevilla. And of course, remembering we're in COVID at this point, did Cologne. in 2019, Kohl again in 2017, and in 2016, he did Dusseldorf. So he's obviously stayed pretty close to home. But suffice it to say, you know, he's not new to the marathon. That would make it one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, plus eight. So 14 marathons now. So this is his 14th marathon. So that's quite... He's peaking quite late in that. There's often, you know, you peak a little bit earlier, but I wonder if that peak that we're seeing historically is reflective of a two marathon per year phenomenon, right? Because two marathons per year, talking about, you know, you're talking about a handful of years in, and that's roughly where he is. Maybe he's still a little bit late in that respect. So all, all very interesting in that. And the other thing to note is even when he was in his 20s, he was running halves. So if you look at his world athletics profile, he was running, you know, Euro under 23s, on the track, but running half marathons and they weren't slow either. They were, you know, 65 or less. So some really interesting training background from Henrik. obviously moved up in distance very quickly. So back to that you know, episode 50 with the, the listener question with the age was like, people are moving up quicker. Like he's one of those people. Uh, yeah. So he is the new style of marathoner coming, you know, sort of moving up earlier. So uh just wanted to sort of put those to the side as a starting point to sort of level set for some people. Um, So let's start off talking about training through the winter. I'm sure you've had some experiences here, Matt. I mean, you and I have had pretty, I don't know, I don't know where you sit on this. I think you probably have had similar experiences in that you've lived in the Southern hemisphere where winters are pretty mild. And then you've lived in the Northern hemisphere where winters are not so mild. And, you know, in the Southern hemisphere, when it's winter, it's actually the nicer time to train and it's the summer you've got to grit your teeth through. Uh, And in the, in the uh, Northern hemisphere, it's probably the other way around. So, um, his observations are really interesting. What did you sort of think, you know, he talked about not running in the cold because it was, you know, worrying for muscle and then also obviously pacing higher pace stuff was a real struggle for him. Whereas he, he found easy running in the cold, pretty easy.
1: Yeah. I mean, being from Hanover, uh, there would probably be a little bit of sleet on the ground potentially through parts of the last couple of months. So, uh, or, or at the minimum it would have been pretty rainy. I think, as he said, raining most of the time. So, uh, that would have presented a small element of risk to, to injury, especially if there is sleet on the ground and it's a little bit of ice, which I, I believe, um, of course, he didn't really tell us too much about that. But at least I know through many parts of Germany and that part of the world there can be, um, you know, which it sounds like that led him to try to find a better solution for training, which is which is why he headed indoors and did a lot on the indoor track. And um, I, I think at least for me, uh, personally, I mean, this is an individual thing for sure, but I think when it's colder, I don't, uh, fatigue or get as tired so quickly in long endurance runs. Um, so I'm not talking about speed work here or intervals or or threshold. There's obviously an element of risk to um, to running outside in the winter, especially if it's if it's icy. But I think um, I don't know. I found that when I moved from from Australia to Finland in 2012 and spent five years there, uh, of which I spent four winters in Finland training. I don't know. I felt like it was almost easier to do. This is personally for me to do higher mileage because the sort of 60 to 120-minute, one- to two-hour runs that were aerobic. I just didn't seem to tire anywhere near as much when I was dealing with a lot colder weather. Um, I don't know if it was the same for Hendrick. He didn't really speak specifically to that, it seems like. Um, But I think it sounds like he definitely kept his volume very high. Obviously, he's a pretty high-mileage guy. Um, But I think the thing that I really found surprising, and we're going to get to in a minute, is how he did so much on the indoor track and how mentally hard that would have been. I think, in a weird way, that would have almost helped him mentally prepare for a marathon to be dealing with such a monotonous circle uh cycle in a, in, in training i think he said at one point you had 100 laps of, of the track in a, in a in a workout which um yeah i mean that's 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 very mind-numbing um and it almost makes marathons feel pretty easy doesn't it mentally when you get out on the road and you've got uh you've got the bright sun in your face and you've got long long nice roads so uh, I think uh, I think in a in a way he probably didn't even realize it, but he was probably mentally toughening himself up to really deal with that um, the race. And in the race, he he said he faced some you know some wind, and he was running alone a lot. So I think that would have really helped him. Uh, but I I can't help but wonder how tough some of those workouts would have been to get through, <laughs> especially the one on the track, the ones on the track. Um, but I think. You know, it's almost like this was a blessing in disguise, it sounded like the fact that the weather was too tough to, to do a lot outside. Uh, I know he did a, a few long runs outside because he logged, I think, one on Strava or maybe two. Um, but yeah, I don't know, Dave. What's your what's your take on on the whole situation? It's 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 so unique, it's so interesting.
0: Yeah, I think a couple of things. So there's the acute risk of being outside in the in the wet or in the snow slash ice that you mentioned. And I think that's exacerbated in super shoes, right? So that like let's put the so the acute risk of slip fall. Or whatever out but I, but I, it's a real risk and i think you need to be really considering that especially in the winter from a safety perspective particularly if you're a pro right, so that's probably the first thing like, put it aside in terms of the long stuff you mentioned the 62 hour runs yeah i tend to agree and i think that's just a heat exposure thing like yeah it's probably not easier in below freezing than it is in single digit celsius or like in the 30s fahrenheit like it's probably not marginally easier when it's colder than that um you know, it's not markedly easier, sorry, when it's colder than that. So I think it's it's probably like a, if I'm choosing Australian summer, talking 100 Fahrenheit, 30 Celsius, or I'm choosing, you know, Northern Hemisphere winter and we're talking right around freezing or a little bit below, then, yeah, I'll choose the freezing or below. But I'm probably a bit like you in that I've sort of run a bit hot. But I think most people would probably, if they had the appropriate clothing and they were used to it, would probably prefer the cool a little bit. Um, Yeah, let's let's jump to that like mental challenge, you know, tra- like treadmill, uh, indoor I think there's a lot I, in this. I think I there's work, more in this
1: than most people realize.
0: I find it fascinating. So if you haven't read Endure by Alex Hutchinson, I think it's probably the fourth or fifth mention we've mentioned of it. If you haven't read it, go read it. That's the story here. So go, go read that and work out what endurance is and, and where it lies. But there's a huge component of mental fatigue in endurance and the monotony of the same thing is, is a huge part of that. I, you know, I personally find point to point courses or one loop or something like that much easier mentally to run. And that's in racing and in training. And I find looped courses much harder. I always have. I mean, you know, we grew up running the same cross country, uh, courses and I would, you know, there was one course that was three by 2k and I found that much harder than two by 3k and, you know, even harder. And, and both of those were harder than a 6k loop, right? Like that's just the way it was. And I mean, we're talking small laps here like that's such a meaningless amount of laps compared to 100 on an indoor track but i do think there's something yeah there's something in this in terms of how hard it is and i, and I think similarly of and we talked a little bit my last episode about training alone versus not training alone or in a previous episode about training alone versus not i think it's similar Is like if you train only solo then in a race then there's people around then that makes it a little bit easier now, that's not to say you should train only solo. That's to say that if that happens to be the case, you find yourself in, there's probably a, a little bit of a benefit that comes on race day. Similar to him is I don't think he would say, oh, this this prep went so well. You know, in summer, I'm going to go to the indoor track and do all my indoor track work. Yeah. No, I'm not going to go outside and run on the beautiful road. So I, I think there is, maybe it's just the silver lining in the cloud. I don't know, but I, I do agree with you. There's, there's something in this, the treadmill as well. Like we, we'll talk about the treadmill and what other benefits it might have in a second as well. But I do think, you know, we were talking off air and you said, and, and he mentioned this, he he usually goes to altitude and you were saying he's a huge believer that it helps him a lot. I often wonder if just, the, it doesn't actually matter what, whether the stimulus is better or worse, or indifferent that change and that novelty is part of what makes you improve. So I've never done this on a track before. And a, that eliminates any comparison you have to previous and any judgment and any chasing times, or anything like that and potentially you know ill discipline with it when it comes to intensity but also it's just novel so your body adapts differently it adapts you know to a similar stimulus but not the same really really novelly
1: yeah 100% i think um i'm definitely with you there and i think that the mental side of racing i think is something that i can fully admit to not really understanding the importance of um and i think a lot of people go in to a race thinking, okay, well, the training's all gone well, that's all that really matters. But I think a lot of the pros, especially when they're dealing with having to qualify for teams and pick up 30 seconds here or one minute there, I think there's a, an element there to understand, okay, well, maybe I've hit my physical limit or really close to it, what can I do now? And yeah, I think in this case, I can imagine training on an indoor track and a treadmill every week to be really mentally demanding. And uh, maybe you could even draw parallels to, the thing that you've given me, the, the skill you've given me credit for privately before, David, it's uh, being very tired and jet lagged and being able to train. And I think it's just something that if anyone tried to do it, they could do it. Like They would just have to put themselves through it. <laughs> it's not very fun. But um, I think in this case, it's almost you could draw a parallel to to Hendrick. And he's probably been forced to do eight weeks or uh, more or less. I'm trying to calculate roughly the time between New York and then maybe having Indeed. a week, week, week or two off.
0: So he did Boston on the 17th of April in a conventional build. Then he had five months and one week to Berlin on the 24th of September. Then he had six weeks to NYC on the 5th of November. And then he had 10 weeks to Houston on the 14th of January.
1: Yeah. So I wouldn't, I mean, he did say he takes his recovery very seriously. Uh, That's, uh, I really enjoyed hearing that part. I can only assume that probably in the week after New York, he probably dropped his mileage. I, I I don't know this. I'm actually only just assuming that he dropped his uh you know dropped his mileage right down. Probably did a whole lot of cycling and easy jogging, but then he would have done probably an eight nine week block uh, where it sounds like he was mostly doing very mentally difficult workouts on an indoor track or on a treadmill. And uh, knowing how a two hundred seven marathoner trains, doing long runs on a treadmill, you can only assume some of them were 30, 35 k with a lot of pretty fast work, which you know puts him in a situation where he has to probably put up with. 20 to 45 minutes at least worth of really long, uncomfortable mental situations in a treadmill, probably staring at a wall or he might have a TV. Um, but either way, I think getting used to that and putting yourself in that situation quite a few times before going out to an open road where you've got a lot of stimulus and a lot of runners around and, and, and sunlight and all this stuff. I don't know. I think I think in a weird way, those things that he had to do because he was just dodging bad weather may have really mentally toughened him up for the race day and yeah. uh, uh you do wonder if, if if it's a good idea to try this stuff before a race i mean it's obviously tough to enjoy training uh thoroughly if you're doing that all week every week on your own that's that's a that's a tough spot to be uh, yeah. but it's it's interesting for sure yeah
0: well it's your poison i sort of put this in the notes it's like he's speaking his poison he's gone listen i don't want to deal with the weather i'm going to go to the treadmill and i felt that in the netherlands there was a time where it was so rainy that if I'd run it outside at all, I would have had water gushing out of my shoes within five minutes. So I decided to do a three, three hour run indoors on the treadmill and it was just torturous, but I've also done in a marathon build. And we talked about this on our treadmill episode, which was episode 20. So go back and listen to that. If you want to hear about treadmill running, or if you have questions about treadmill running, but I mentioned this on that episode is I I did in prep. I can't remember which exact prep it was, but I did 38 kilometers um, at 95% of goal marathon pace on the treadmill. And, uh, just one pace. Yeah, one pace the whole time. Got on, oh. set it to the pace and cracked on 38Ks later. And like that was that would have been two hours, two and a half hours or so for me listen, a little bit longer. Did you listen to anything or watch anything? I think I watched a bunch of Sweat Elite videos, I'll be honest. Um, I think I was watching videos. And if I wasn't watching videos, I was definitely listening to podcasts. So like it wasn't. Yeah. But my treadmill, I can open the window if I want, and I would have at this time and see the street on the outside, but like it's not exactly stimulating. So uh yeah, I actually got off the treadmill this morning and did a, you know, I did a session this morning on the treadmill. I'm getting more and more enjoyment out of the treadmill, but yeah, it's it's pretty mind numbing. I'll say that much. Um, How are you getting more enjoyment out of the treadmill, by, by the way, just quickly? I don't know. I'm just enjoying it more. I'm I think uh, the other it, thing, probably. yeah, I'm starting to do, I mean, look, I'm still needing it for tolerance uh, for my ankle. It's still sort of not quite tolerating the road as well. Um, it's giving me the ability to train earlier because of light, which is helping, but also I kind of just have this thing as like the treadmill sucks. And so like, let's bang the session and enjoy that. Like enjoy the suck a little bit. Yeah. And then hard things. yeah. And then enjoying music with intervals and, and threshold type work. So, you know, I find easy running on the treadmill way harder than intensity on the treadmill. Um, same, and he kind yeah. of, he kind of mentioned the same thing. He mentioned that he found, and I tend to agree with this. I think this is part of his recovery ability is he said with the treadmill, he could lock into a pace and it was a bit more disciplined. He's not pushing the pace or anything. And I think there's something there around this, intensity control you know Norwegian model and you know we mentioned that Norwegian model in episode 15 but that double threshold model so go back and listen to that but I think it's easy to go oh yeah my goal pace is 320 per kilometer oh let's let's try for some 318s but actually that doesn't feel like a big difference but it's significant like it you shouldn't be doing that you should be like trying to stay around around that 320 and I'm guilty of this as well so I think what it does is it forces you to lock into that pace and just sit at that pace. And if it's not that hard, then that's okay. And you sit there and grind it out. And I think there's something about the treadmill that forces you to do that versus being outdoors. I also think there's a bit of a heat stimulus for it compared to being outside or whatever. Cause like you know, even in the middle of winter, it's still warmer indoors or it's quite warm indoors, especially if you're in Europe, it's generally going to be heated. So yeah. you'll be in a room that's like, you know, in the teens Celsius, maybe in the, in the fifties, Fahrenheit. So, there's probably a little bit of a heat stimulus there as well. Yes, you're not at altitude, but but I think there's some some heat components to it as well. So perhaps, you know, perhaps there's something there. And and again, the novelty. He's doing that versus something else. Uh, he's never done a lot on the treadmill. So, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: I think also there might be a very small element. You sort of spoke to this a little, a little bit there, but it's like if you know in Hendrix's case, he needs to run three minutes per kilometer, or I think it's uh, two fifty nine high um he can lock that in put the three minutes per kilometer on the treadmill run and then he can learn over time to really relax at that yeah. pace because yeah, he doesn't yeah, yeah. have to think about the pace anymore and i wonder how how effective that really is over the long term if you do one run of 10k at that pace yeah it's maybe not that much benefit but i wonder if i wonder if over six to eight weeks it'd be i'd, be, I'd love to know actually how many long runs he did do in there and how many long workouts so he mentioned the three i think it was eight by three k workout but um uh, I wonder if there's an element to just, yeah, locking it at that pace and just telling yourself over many minutes and many hours, okay, relax, just, just relax. And then I think that might give you a lot of confidence on race day.
0: Yeah. I think I've noticed myself doing this a little bit is, you know, this morning I did um, an AK block of work at a fairly high intensity and you definitely go through periods where you are a little bit less and a little bit more relaxed and you can tell yourself to relax. So I think you've got something. I think you might be onto something there because not relaxing and really gritting. That is a waste of energy in itself. So the ability yeah. to relax while you run is a, is a huge asset, I think. Um, and like, I mean, let's get, like, let's go to the recovery stuff. So he mentioned he recovers well. I mean, I find, I find a couple of phrases in running quite funny. Like I respond well to altitude. You, you, most people say that, uh, a couple say they don't, uh, a lot of people say they're high mileage people. Like, with no real discerning as to what that is. And then most people say they recover well. So it's it, these things are almost not meaningless, but but they're interesting to hear how frequently <laughs> we hear them. I wonder if they, they start to lose some meaning. But look, why is he recovering well? I think, for me, I think um, training age is a big part of it for him. We talked about this earlier. He's been running halves and marathons for quite a while. He's done quite a few of them. Uh, I think, you know, age is probably in a sweet spot given training age and and, and chronological age. And we talked a bit about this age stuff. We said in episode 50, um, and then one of the big factors in your recovery ability is fitness. So, and aerobic fitness specifically. So he's obviously got quite a bit of that and yeah. So I I think those are probably the factors, um, you know, treadmill running, do you recover better or worse? I think it depends on like what you're doing and what it's really hard to compare. I mean, what shoes is he wearing on the treadmill? I mean, if you're wearing super shoes in the treadmill, like, geez, it's a bit of a gift, really. So yeah. I don't really know. Any thoughts from you here, Matt? I mean, he obviously focused on it as well, which is a big part of it.
1: Yeah, I'd love to learn more about that, too. Um, yeah, I think I wouldn't be surprised. I, I wouldn't say I know Hendrick overly well, but I think I can sort of at least envision him putting a lot of emphasis on getting you know enough sleep, um, eating very well. I do remember when I was in Kenya with him, he was... He was quite dialed into to the diet side of things and making sure they protein and all those sorts of things. Um, who knows? There could be other aspects of just sort of, uh, I think one of the big thing that's a bit, little bit overlooked with recovery uh, learned in Japan is going to, uh, of course, he probably doesn't have these in Germany exactly, but he might have something similar and that's the Japanese onsens. So the, the spas where you can go to and relax and, and hang out. And I don't know. I had a few Japanese runners tell me that that's part of their recovery routine, not necessarily directly muscle related, but just uh, stress uh, winding down making sure your uh, your cortisol is low at the right times of day and all these sorts of things um yeah cortisol it doesn't have to be low all the time. Um, you can listen to Hooverman talk about that uh but I think I think I can imagine him doing a lot of these sorts of small things just to really make sure um uh all the box are ticked uh but I don't know Henrik also strikes me as a sort of guy that would maybe I, I think one challenge in backing up between marathons that I think some people would struggle with is, if they've got a marathon and then they've got another one 6 weeks later they probably assume they have to keep mileage high the whole way through whereas i argue that's that's a bad thing to follow especially the the week after the first one into the second one mileage should be irrelevant it should be completely irrelevant because you've just done a marathon at 90 to 100% effort whatever your plan is and i think recovery that stimulus from that run alone is enormous something you'll never get from training so you can afford to have a you know, five to seven day really down period after that, where you could even not even really run much at all. You could just do a bit of cycling or maybe jog once or twice and you will not lose fitness after that, especially no. in seven days. I mean, it, maybe the argument comes in at 14 days, maybe a little bit, but I think it's seven days you don't. So I think, uh yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he's taking that first week post every marathon really easy because if you absorb that marathon, his New York 212, oh man, like, if you properly absorb that and recover from that and, and then use it for your next block, it could be very um, it could be very helpful for the aerobic capacity.
0: Yeah, I think there's two components to when people think about fitness, they think about their ability to run a marathon. It's it's actually readiness. It's a component of both fitness and fatigue. So your fitness is is not particularly high as you finish a marathon, or it maybe it is, but your fatigue is very high. So the 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 these are almost move in opposite directions. So you need to freshen up a little bit for your fitness to start to show up in terms of day-to-day. So yeah, I tend to agree with you. The last thing I wanted to touch on here was training camps versus not training camps. And uh, this might be altitude, this might be heat, this might be whatever, wherever you're going to go. And there's a recent example you know, from triathlon that we keep mentioning here. It's, we mentioned triathlon a lot for a running podcast, but uh, Lucy Charles Barkley dominated the world championships last year in Kona um, and it did her whole block at home by herself uh, in the UK and did a ton of work you know, on the trainer, so that's the equivalent of treadmill work, but on a bike. And you know, these bike sessions could be six hours. So you, you think you think your time on a treadmill is boring? You wait until you're riding a bike for six hours, dead still. So some of the things her and her coach talked about, um, which were really interesting to me, were things like not having to travel, having a support network at home, similar food no questions around things. Everything was just sort of really simple for them because I knew everything. And I wonder if there's a component of this for, for, uh, for Hendrik, particularly given, you know, he's run most of his marathons in Germany. So, um, is obviously a component of enjoying being in Germany and doing those things, right. Versus someone like you, Matt, who, who enjoys traveling. Right. So, so I wonder how much of the benefit there was a lack of stress, right? You talk about, I recover well. Well, part of recovering well is not stressing yourself too much and maybe that's part of it he didn't stress himself with travel he didn't stress himself with altitude he didn't stress himself with those things he was just at home knew everything knows the supermarket knows the language knows all that like just goes and does his thing and lives very normally and i think we can underestimate the amount of stress that comes with perhaps traveling oh and yes yeah. i can't i can't have this enough. <laughs> Yes, you get a lot in. It's just the and- small
1: things. Like you, you said something then that I couldn't agree with you more. Even just like being able to go to the supermarket and speak the language, like it's a small thing and you'd never imagine it to be stressful. But like if you do it every day, over time, it's like a compounding effect of just like, oh, my brain is just like constantly needing to work really hard. So that affects your training. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, 100%. And I, I think the best athletes do the best job of, controlling stress outside of training because then they can adapt better to training. And look, I can tell you now, and this is a me thing, it's not an everybody thing, but I think it's probably more common than people would consider. Like if you track your HRV pretty regularly, which I do using multiple, multiple things, I can tell you it responds worse to travel. The thing that will do the worst for me is travel. I recently spent some time in Portugal. My HRV was in the gutter the whole time. I had a great time. I really relaxed and really enjoyed it, but it was still, it's still a component of stress because of all the stimulation. So you know, there's definitely a component of that, so I think that shouldn't be undersold in in Hendrick's situation.
1: Yeah, hundred percent.
0: Yeah, I don't know. With the training
1: camp thing, uh, there definitely doesn't seem to be a wrong or right answer here. I mean, I, I can name, I can point to many examples of people going on an altitude camp, coming out and smashing their best, it might be a national record or or an Olympic qualifying time. Uh, I can also point to quite a lot of examples of people staying home. Phil sespin's one that comes to mind, he's run some great marathons off staying at home, doing a training camp in his backyard um in his in his hometown sorry and uh yeah i think there's it's it's one of those things where uh, there might not really be any correlations it might just be a might just boil down to a bit of luck um hendrix run uh a 210 qualifying time for tokyo olympics after training in kenya for six weeks that obviously worked for him he did tell me at the time that he thinks altitude is very important for him i'm not sure if he thinks that anymore because he just ran <laughs> 207 14 without got altitude <laughs> so i don't know
0: i think we get really hung up. We, we see something like this. We go, why? Why was the thing in this case that did it? And we go, oh, he stayed at home. It must be that, right? And, and something that comes to mind is a story. Many listeners are probably too young to or, or didn't know who Mark Spitz was. But Mark Spitz was the greatest swimmer of all time until um, um Michael Phelps came along. And Mark Spitz had won all these medals. He was an Olympic uh, swimmer for the US and famously had this huge soup strain moustache. And it was at a time when everyone was shaving everything for swimming. And... And apparently one of the coaches, one of the Russian coaches asked Mark Spitz's coach, like, doesn't that you know, slow him down because of the drag? And his coach, like tongue in cheek said, oh, no, no, it, it takes water away from his mouth so he can breathe better. And apparently the next year at the Russian trials, all of them had mustaches. And I don't know how true the story is, but it's such a great example. And because everyone could believe it, right? It's such a great example of like, we look at one outlier, look, at, look for one factor and go, oh, well, I got to do that then. So I think what I'm getting at is, there's lots of factors here. Some of them probably helped him, some of them maybe didn't help him, but the net situation was positive. And again, to your point around camp or no camp, sometimes that changes across a lifetime. Yeah. Camp will be different for you at 32 than it would at 28, than it would at whatever. Like depends on what you've got going on in your life and what's what else is happening. So yeah, I think it probably isn't an answer. And it's it's hard to discern the true effect because the effect is probably part of a range of things that are impacting stuff. But uh Yeah, I think uh, that'll do us for another episode of Pro News. So thanks again for listening in. Please do share the podcast. Uh, Please rate it as well if you haven't rated it yet. And uh, we will see you next week.
1: See you next week, guys.